Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, begins in speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which where the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The storyline from Genesis through the New Jerusalem of Revelation is the narrative of how God solved the great problem of, in His uncompromising holiness, He could yet dwell on earth amongst sinful people. It is a problem with which every rational mind must wrestle, and yet an issue of such great contradiction that it can only be solved by God Himself. His ultimate solution was found in simply four words, the cross of Christ. So vital was this cross that even today, the one who died there is described as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. To explain his provision, God created a river of blood that flows out of the Old Testament and finds its cresting at the very foot of the cross. The glorious songs of the redeemed have historically been saturated by this theme. From the simple revival time chorus, Oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow, to the grand hymns of the faith. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Or what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or saved by the blood of the crucified one, now ransomed from sin and a new work begun. Sing praise to the Father and praise to the Son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. The Father, he spoke, his will it was done. Great price of my pardon, his own precious Son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Or this most familiar, alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for a worm such as I? My God, why would you shed your blood so pure and undefiled to make a sinful one like me your chosen precious child? Or probably the most familiar of all, there is a fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stains. 
Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. There is an unavoidable river of blood that flows from the Old Testament. There are at least 447 statements of the blood in the Bible, 375 verses. In the Old Testament, there are 346 times when the sacrificial blood of Christ is referenced. It begins with God's slaughter of the innocent, even in the Garden of Eden, where we're told that the man and the woman in their rebellion discovered that they were exposed and naked, and they went and they sewed their own garments out of leaves, hoping that somehow they could screen themselves in their shame. And God met them there, and it said, and he clothed them in the animals' skins. We find it in Genesis chapter 4, when Abel brings the only acceptable offering to God when he brought a lamb from his own flock. It is the lamb that was provided as a substitute for Isaac in Genesis 22, where dad and lad are making their way up the hill. And the little boy looks at his father and he says, Father, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where's the lamb for sacrifice? And his father comforts his heart by saying, God will provide a lamb. It's the lamb of Israel's Passover night. When God told them that every household, every family is to choose one lamb and it must be spotless without blemish. And it is to be sacrificed and the blood is to be taken and to be painted on the doorframe of the house. And when the death angel flies over, when the blood has been applied, not one individual would die in the home. It's the lambs of the 40 years of wandering and the daily sacrifices as the children of Israel habitually rebelled against God. They continued to sin. But he had made a gracious way, a provision for them, in that if they would simply bring an innocent one to die in their place, he would cover their sins. But the most extreme is the Day of Atonement. It was an extreme bloodletting day, and it happened one day out of the year. When God in His grace was willing, through the faithful sacrifice of the animals, to cover their sins of ignorance, big point, covered the sins of ignorance from the year that preceded. The ground was saturated by the shedding of blood. The aprons of the ministering priest were deeply stained. Virtually every inch of the sacred furnishings were splattered. The hands of the priest dripped daily with the blood as they simply served another day at the office. 25 years of labor. Their 50th birthday could not arrive soon enough. But even then, in their new season of service, there remained a constant bleeding of the innocent lambs and the continual stench of the burning flesh of the sacrifices. The burdened souls of repentant and yet repeating sinners crying out for mercy. If you were born into the family of Levi and the descendancy of Aaron, you lived, you served, you guarded, and you died. And behind you another generation of priests were born to mediate between sinful man and holy God. Such was the life of the tabernacle. 
Now, there is an interesting fact that if you're playing Trivia Pursuit, you may want to contain this. It's like everything that we have enjoyed, we sang about the creation and how it worships the Lord. And, you know, the, the more you travel and the more you examine, the more amazed you are at God's creative genius and beauty. All that we see that God created, he covered the creation in two chapters of the Bible. But in the creation of the tabernacle, he chose no less than 50 chapters, which indicates that the tabernacle and the portraits painted there are absolutely essential to understanding the redemptive narrative and the story of our salvation. As we said before, our letter to the Hebrews, the key point that ties it together is how is it that sinful man can draw near to holy God? Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 7, verse 19, we read, A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Chapter 10, verse 1, Daryl will take us there next week. Since the law is but a shadow, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Or chapter 10, verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of the assurance of faith. Or chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that, one, he exists, and two, that he rewards those who seek him. So in our text this morning, verses 1 through 10 deal with the inadequacies of the blood rituals of the Old Testament. We've already read through verse 5. Let me pick it up at verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. That is, so the, the, the tabernacle is laid out. It is, it is a courtyard 75 feet wide and 150 feet deep, in the middle of which is a 45 foot long and 15 foot wide and 15 foot high tent. That first room is 30 feet deep, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall. It is called the holy place. It is in this, the priests go regularly, the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, which is a 10 or 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot cube, it is the most sacred 15 foot cube in all of creation into that second one called the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and never without taking blood. Mark the number of times blood appears in the text this morning. I think you'll count 12 different times. Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. God's provision was... If you committed a sin and you were unaware of that and you knew it was a violation, but you had not brought an animal sacrifice of confession and repentance, God in his grace was willing to cover that sin of the year past on the Day of Atonement. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section still stands. So when you would come into the courts of the tabernacle, when you walk through that 30-foot wide gate, 
the first thing you would come to is a bronze altar where sacrifices for sins were offered. And then between that and the tent itself was a cleansing laver where we were reminded again that even though our sins have been taken care of through the applied shed blood, that there are still, we continue to sin and we need daily cleansing, repentance from that. Verse 9 says, which is symbolic of this present age. According to this arrangement, Gifts, we talked about that last week. The gifts are those voluntary sacrifices or offerings that we bring, not blood offerings, but gifts of grain and other things that declare our dedication to the Lord. We, we worship, we adore, we exalt Him. Uh, we're grateful for all that He's provided, so we give Him a gift. And sacrifices, which are shed blood sacrifices, which an innocent gives his life in the place of the guilty, According to this arrangement, those gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. There's the big issue. You see, our real problem is not our environment. It's not our culture and our situation. Our real problem is us. It's the person of the inside. And so God in His grace provided a way that for Another year, the offenses against God of a year past, I could forget about and move forward. The only problem with that is that I was still a slave of sin. And so the Day of Atonement is no sooner over. If I'm lucky, if I worked really hard, I might get through the Day of Atonement and not commit an offense. But by the next day, I'm already committing sin again. And my conscience is continually condemning me for that and the worshiper could do nothing about it, but deals only with food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So he is saying to these Hebrews that are beginning to waver in their commitment and their faith, he's saying that from the beginning, the law was only provisional. It was illustrative of what God is going to do later through another sacrifice. So the inadequacy of it is, number one, that it is limited in its access. Only the high priest could ever go into the Holy of Holies. The other priest, if they were descendants of Aaron, could win the lottery for the week, and there were so many of them that the chances of repeating that were pretty slim. But if you were graced by God for one time, for one week in your 25 years of ministry, you could go in daily into the holy place and continue to put the charcoal, the coals from the altar on the altar of incense and continue to pour the oil into the candle opera so that it burned 24-7, 365. Apart from that, you, you never got close. And then frighteningly, so you're standing there at the altar of incense and right there is this magnificent curtain with the cherubim embroidered into it as a reminder of the cherubim who guarded the gate going into Eden when God drove them out and he put the flaming swords of the cherubim there so they wouldn't go back in and eat of the tree of life and live forever in their condemned state. You're standing there frightened because the only place in all of creation that holy God said he would meet with sinful man was just on the other side of the curtain in that 15-foot cube. But only the high priest ever went beyond the curtain. And he only did it one time a year. He never went in casually. It was a few short, terrifying 
minutes. Because as we'll reference by the end, the reality is that the morning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest realizes if God does not accept the sacrifice, this is the last dawn of my earthly life. He didn't spend much time there. This limited efficacy is that, again, it was only for sins of ignorance. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30-31. If you committed a sin, but there was no sacrifice provided for willful rebellion. Which is why David said in Psalm 51, when he was, he was repenting and casting himself on God's mercy, he had committed adultery, he had committed murder, he had lied, he had cost the lives of many of the people that were supposed to be under his care as a king. And he said, cries out in Psalm 51 confessionally, he says, if sacrifice and offering you desired, I'd gladly give that. The only thing that he could bring to God was a broken and a contrite spirit. There was no offering provided for willful rebellion. And its limitation was simply this. It could never cleanse the conscience. It could never take away the reality, the awareness within of how unworthy you stood before God. But in verse 11 to 17, he talks about the adequacies of the blood of Christ. Notice, but when Christ appeared, by contrast, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, we talked about that last week, that, that the tabernacle in the wilderness was but a replica of the real thing in heaven. God let an octogenarian take a look at it and said, now go down and make it exactly like that. It's made not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. And he did it not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. He didn't offer animal sacrifices and then go one time into the presence of God himself, but by means of his own blood. So this high priest is also the sufficient sacrifice, the substitute. Thus securing, underline this, an eternal redemption. Redemption means that he, there is a, you are a slave of a, of a mean slave master called Satan. You are a slave in your sin. You have no will of your own. You're only doing what you're commanded to do. And in order to be released from that slavery, somebody has to pay a ransom price. And through his shed blood, Jesus paid the price, rescued you, redeemed you, bought you out eternally. Now, I don't know how many still struggle with that sense of insecurity about their salvation. But this particular chapter tells us twice that the work that Jesus did for us on the cross secured a salvation that can never be taken from us. It's an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if that animal sacrifice is able to pacify, satisfy God on the external of our lives, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God. He was the perfect substitute sacrifice. In, in the Passover, they were to select the lamb. 
They were to examine it for 14 days, make sure there were no scarves, there were, there were no blemishes on it, so that what they offered to God was absolutely perfect. In that, in that context, God provided witnesses. According to the Old Testament, it, it, it takes two agreeing witnesses to bring an accusation or a clarity. And God provided for Christ the ultimate sacrifice for us, those two witnesses. The first one was Pilate, who said, I find no fault in him. And the second one, of all people, was Herod, who said, I find no fault in him. He offered himself without blemish to God. You could purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purify the conscience. It did what the old law couldn't do. It, it cleansed our sense of guilt and obligation. And why does he throw in the dead works? He said the problem is, is, is that somehow they were believed, they had been taught that if you do certain things, if you have behavioral modification enough that you reform yourself and you go through all these rituals and that God will smile upon you approvingly and it simply can't be done. So they are works that are religious activities, but they lead to death because they only condemn. We can't keep it up. We're not consistent. But notice then it says the reason that he cleanses our conscience from dead works is to serve the living God. He buys us out of slavery to sin. He sets us free. But not to do whatever we want to do. His purpose is not to redeem us to hedonistic liberty and freedom. But rather to enable us to do what we ought to do and never could do before. Because our conscience no longer condemns us. Now see, the conscience that condemns is the individual who believes that one day I'll stand before God and I'll represent myself, I'll be my own defense attorney, and I will present my works, my, my legacy to him, and he'll go, wow, heaven will be blessed to have somebody of your character here. And the reality is, is that as soon as I do that, he'll say guilty as charged, condemned. But if I stand there in the shadow of the advocate he's provided, that is Jesus. And every time that the father looks at the sinner behind him, Jesus says, no, no, look at him through me. He's wearing my robes of righteousness. I have nothing to fear. So he picks it up here again, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator. He is the go-between. He is the one that stands with his hand on the offender and on the offended. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive, here it is again, the promised eternal inheritance. So I have eternal redemption in verse 12, and I have an eternal inheritance. I, I have been purchased out of the, of the slave market of sin and not just sent free, but adopted into the household of God. Now I'm a child. The only people that get in on the inheritance, as I said before, my grandson is graduating this year in Indiana. He, he, he said, now, Papa, I mentioned in your will, aren't I? And I said, yeah, Tate. I says, hi, Tate. I hope you're having a good day. I said, well, I, you know, but he assumes because he's in the family, he's going to get some mention in whatever will or inheritance that. That's what he's talking about here. There is an, an eternal inheritance. Who is it for? It's for family members only. And it never goes away. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under 
the first covenant. And now he's talking about willful. Transgressions are calculated acts of rebellion against God's holy standard. The difference between the old is it was there to cover ignorant sins. This one covers even those willful acts of in your face to God committed under the old covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. You see, a will is only a piece of paper that can be changed, modified, whatever, up until the death of the one that writes the will. At that moment, the will goes into action. What is written stands. It takes the death of the will writer in order for the inheritance to be divided. That's what makes it so offensive with the prodigal son. When he went to his father and he says, Father, I want that share of the inheritance that is coming to me. He said, you don't divide up the inheritance until dad's dead. So basically, he went to his father and said, I wish you were dead. I am sick and tired of living with all of the expectations and all of the restraints and all the confinement of being your son. I just wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. And his father says, here's your inheritance, go. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So, here's the wonder of the blood of Jesus. The adequacies are, number one, he appeared. As a high priest, he came to do the good things. He represented us. Second, he entered one time for all times into the holy of holies. He didn't go in and come back out and go in. It, like I said, all the way through we've been kind of pointing out that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. You'll notice when we summarize the furniture in the tabernacle, there's no chair. Because the work of intercession is never done. The work of mediation between sinner and holy God is never done. But Jesus went in one time, and he is now seated at the Father's right hand. And in doing so, he offered himself without blemish to God. Not to you and to me. He didn't, he didn't have to pacify or satisfy us. His Father is a holy God who cannot embrace sinful people unless somebody deals with the sin and the offense. But in doing that, the beauty of his is it secured for us an eternal salvation. He has redeemed us forever. So if, if you're of those who have, who have doubted and wondered, you know, did I, did I pray, pray the prayer right? Did I, did I really genuinely believe in that? The promise is that his buying you out of slavery was an eternal commitment. And the fact is that the salvation that he has graced you with is an eternal inheritance. The adequacies. What was unlimited, what was limited before, there is now unlimited access. The veil was torn from the top to bottom. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. And suddenly you didn't have to be an heir of Levi or a descendant of Aaron. You just had to be a sinner that knew he was a sinner and trusted Jesus had paid it all. And you were welcome into his presence. It's open for all. And it's unlimited in its efficacy. Eternal redemption, a purified conscience, an eternal inheritance. He took our sins and he carried it away, as I said last week from the book of Isaiah. He has taken our sins and he has cast them behind his back 
never to look upon them again. As he said in Micah chapter 7, he has thrown our sins down on the ground. He has ground them out with his foot. He has picked up those ashes and he has cast them on the waves of the sea, never to bring them back anymore. As Jeremiah said, our sins he has forgotten and he'll remember them no more. And he promises us a living hope. You see, the work that Jesus did took care of the past, but it also makes a promise for the future. It's not like I'm rescued out of this and now I just kind of live in neutrality and uncertainty. But by his grace, he gives us a glorious future. So the necessity, starting in verse 18. Therefore, another application word, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Blood has been part of God's plan. There is a river that flows. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, Exodus 24, you can read the story, he took the blood of calves and goats, he mixed it together with water, and then he took scarlet wool and hyssop, and, uh, which is like a, uh, like a butter brush, and he, he sprinkled both the book, that is the law, the tablets, and he sprinkled the people, thus binding both to this commitment. That the people said, whatever God has said, that we will do. If you keep your word, we'll sprinkle you with blood. What is it he said? This is on the, on the tablets. It's in the book. And this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, in the same way, he sprinkled also the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And now here's the key phrase in the text. Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. And it's not the volume of the blood. It's, it's, it's not the, the constant repetitious. But the blood is, as he says in the Old Testament, it is the life of a living being. So when he's talking about shedding blood, he is talking about the giving of a life. It's the death that has occurred as represented in the loss of the blood. Verse 23. Notice the efficacy of the blood of Jesus. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that is, the earthly tabernacle, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. Something created on earth, killed on earth, the blood brought into God's holy presence was not adequate. It took a better sacrifice. So, verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. He didn't go through veil one and veil two into the holy place and the holy of holies. They are just simply copies of true things, but he entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's our lawyer. He's our advocate. He's the one that appeals our case to his Father. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper here at the end of our worship. And, and some have erred by saying that, that what we are doing is that we are seeing this bread become the literal body of Jesus and this blood becoming his blood and that, that we are crucifying Christ over again and again. But he warns us, he says, now, it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood on his own, he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of their sin occurred in the garden with the first couple. 
And if it required that Jesus be sacrificed repeatedly for every sin occurred, he would never get a day off. He would be coming to earth day after day because we sin against him day after day. He had a better plan. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, which is the day in which all of the Old Testament redemptive story led to the day when Jesus gave himself in your place and mine on the cross. That began the ends of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, and just a word of caution, I know that you like to be the master of your own schedule, but you have two appointments that are made that are unavoidable. I don't know and you don't know exactly when they are. But appointment number one is there is a day when every one of us is going to die. Some of us will die young, and some of us will die not so young. But the reality is, unless Jesus returns, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mean, today would be a good day for a trumpet, I'm just telling you. But if, unless he returns, we're all going to die. You have an appointment. According to Psalm 139, your appointment is written on God's timetable. It's on his clock. It's on his calendar. This week I'm going to do memorial service. For a baby that never made it out of the womb before she went to be, he went to be in the arms of Jesus. Yesterday I was at a memorial service for a brother that went to be with Jesus 68 years. Your day may be somewhere between there. It may be well after 100, as George Burns said, I hope to live to be 100 because very few people die after that. But we lost a good friend at 102 last week. So you've got an appointment on your calendar. It's appointed under you once to die. But the second appointment is the most intimidating. And after that comes the judgment. There is a day when every single one of us, by himself alone, without any family member to cover for us, no mom, dad, grandma to stand between, we will all one day stand before a holy, righteous, uncompromising judge. And if you have the audacity to be your own defense attorney on that day, then we should say farewell to you now. Because nothing that you can bring to him can satisfy. But if you have the grace to trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, paid your penalty in full, then he will stand between you and the righteous judge. And whenever the accuser on the left says, well, you know, Rempel did, and Jesus on the right is going to say, don't look at him, look at me. Look at me, he's in me. He's wearing my robes of righteousness. You've got two appointments. Are you prepared for either or both? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's not coming to die again. But he's coming to complete the transaction. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That was a, that was a trigger text. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
So in verse 24, he appears as a priest. In verse 26, he appears as a prophet. And in verse 28, he appears as a king. Now, in the tabernacle, and we don't have time to unpack this. Somebody said uh, between the services, he says, there's probably enough in the tabernacle that you could preach like a whole series of sermons. And I said, well, I don't have much time left, but yes, I could in the past I have. But just some, some of the highlights of what he expects. Because he's, he's talking about the activities of the tabernacle here. And some of the things we should learn from that is, one, when, when you lived in the tents that surrounded the tabernacle, that 150 feet by 75 foot with the gate to the east in the middle of the camp, all you would see, unless you were a priest, is the outer curtain, which is pure white. It's a reminder that God is holy and you are not, and there is a separation between us. You will notice that there's a 30-foot wide opening on the east side. There's only one way in and one way out. There's only one door. Jesus said, I am the door. No one comes or goes unless they go through me. But I want you to notice that the courts were large and open so that anyone who chose to go into the courts, they could go. But the first thing they would run into is a bronze altar with a constant fire, always smelling like burning flesh. For sins of the worshiper had to be addressed. And in that bronze altar, we see the cross of Jesus. And beyond that, we see the labor for cleansing. So even though my conscience is clean and my hands are clean, the reality is I still stumble and fall, and he in his grace cleanses me again. And then we go through the first curtain, and to our right, the first thing we see is a golden table with two stacks of six loaves of bread on it. As a reminder that God has provided the very thing without which we cannot live, Bread is the sustenance of life. And he reminded them. So every Sabbath they would go in and they would put 12 fresh loaves of bread on the table and then they would take the weak old bread and that's what the Levites would consume. Only they could eat it. And then on the left was a, a five foot tall candle opera with seven arms and they would go there every day and continue to pour the oil there so that it burned 24-7, 365 as a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. And then this is a little confusing because in every other text of Scripture, it's in verse 3 here it says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the, whole, the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. But every other occurrence of the altar of incense is in the holy place on that front, right in front of the curtain. And that's where Zechariah was in Luke chapter 1 when the angel met him and he was doing that duty. But I think that some of the authors put it this way, that there was such a close relationship between the intercession and the mercy seat that this author puts it there. But we're reminded again that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, always living for one reason, to make intercession for us. But straight ahead of us, just at the back of the 15-foot room, there's a casket, a three-foot casket of solid gold. On top of it was a second piece of furniture, but it was related to the first, and it's called the mercy seat. It's a solid gold table that's set upon it. And it was there. That is the throne of a holy God. It is there on that mercy seat that God said that he would meet us. That's why we had to have the sprinkling of blood. 
And on each end of the mercy seat are the guardian angels, the replicas of the cherubim in Genesis chapter 3, where they were positioned at the gate of the garden so that the sinful couple could not repent, turn back, eat of the tree of life, and live forever in a condemned state. Inside the casket were three reminders of the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. There was an urn that had manna. And remember when they came out of, out of Egypt and, and they said, what, did you leave us out here to starve to death? It would be better that we had stayed as slaves in the land of Egypt and survived on, on leeks and garlics. And I've got to tell you what, I don't find that attractive at all. This is, this is my diet. I'm just not interested in that. But they, so God said, I'll provide for you. And every morning, six days a week, you get up. You get up before the sun comes up, early in the morning, and on the, on the ground, like dew, there would be manna. And they would go out and they say, what is this? And that's where it comes from. That's what manna means. What is it? It was God's provision for them for 40 years. They were publishing all kinds of cookbooks called 101 Ways to Make Manna and all kinds of things. But it was a reminder that they had doubted God's grace and provision. The second one was the staff of Aaron. Remember when God called Moses out in the wilderness and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go. And Moses said, whoa, 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 that's a great plan, but the wrong man. And he gave him all these excuses. The last one was, I'm not, 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 a, not a very, very articulate individual. And God, in frustration, says, I'll send your brother Aaron. And he says, and Aaron's staff will be the evidence of my presence. And if he throws the staff down, it'll immediately become a dangerous, poisonous serpent. And when he picks it up by the tail, which you don't do with a dangerous, poisonous serpent, it'll become a staff again. While they're in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, there was an uprising amongst the children of Israel. 250 elders and leaders of the people said, what's with Moses and Aaron doing all this stuff? After all, we're all leaders and we're all godly and we're all qualified people. We could be priests just like they are. And Moses, he starts to defend his brother and God says, this one's on me. Have them all bring their staff and come back tomorrow. Whichever one of them, their staff, a staff is just a dead stick that's very well-worn. There's no life left in it. Whichever one blooms, that's the one that is called of God to be the priest. And it was Aaron's rod. So this was a reminder. And God said, I'll take care of the other 250 in their families. And it was an ugly scene. It was a mass funeral. And the third was the tablets. The law. You remember the tablets, the autographs. Moses went up on a mountain and God gave him the law. It says, written by the finger of God, and he's coming down the mountain, and he picks Joshua partway down, who had been waiting for him those 40 days. And as they near the camp, Joshua says, wow, it sounds like, it sounds like war or something going on in the camp. And Moses, having spiritual insight, said, no, it's a sign of sin. And he got there to find out that his brother Aaron had allowed, had allowed them to talk him into taking their gold and creating a cow. And they were celebrating the cow and said, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. And Moses, in righteous indignation, took the only set of the law written by the finger of God and shatters it on the rock. And God says, come back up on a mountain. These people are getting to you. Here's two tablets. Call me in the morning. He went back up. But this time, he said, you write it. As a reminder. 
So you've got a holy God meeting a sinful man above a coffin, a casket, with three reminders of their rebellion. How, how can God meet them there? That's the application of the blood. He didn't look upon their sin in the urn, in the staff, in the tablets. He looked down upon the mercy seat and he saw the applied blood. So he says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, not to die for sinners again, but in order to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is a river of blood that flows all through the scripture. Having carefully and repeatedly rehearsed every small detail of the day that loomed before him, the high priest would rise long before sunup. His nerves were on edge for the events of this day would mean life or death. One simple misstep, and this would be the dawn of his last day on earth. So after the slaughter of the bull that he had purchased with his own money, for it was the sacrifice to cover his own personal sins, he entered the sacred room behind the separating curtain. And he sprinkled the blood quickly on the top of the ark. And then exited with a deep sigh of relief. He would then remove these elaborate garments of his honorable position and completely bathe himself and then dress himself head to toe in white. A white long undershirt topped by a long white robe and his head wrapped in a white turban. And he would slaughter the sacrifice of the sin offering, carry the shed blood cautiously into the tent, Walk silently and alone across the 30 feet of the entryway. Pull back the elaborate linen veil and fearfully step into the most holy 15-foot cube on the entire face of the planet. As quickly as possible, he would perform the mandated ritual of dipping the brush into the bowl and rapidly sprinkling the contents on the mercy seat, continually moving so that the bells on the bottom of his robe continued to ring, letting the anxious worshipers know that he was still alive, that God had not rejected him. And then as quickly as possible, he would slip back out from behind the veil, hurry across the 30 feet to the doorway of the tent and burst out into the sunlight of the packed courts of the temple. And the gathered congregation would break out into a spontaneous, loud celebration. Here's the kicker of verse 28. You see, the return of the high priest from the holy presence of most holy God was a testimony that God had accepted their sacrifices and had covered all their sins. The survival and return of the high priest was testimony to divine acceptance and forgiveness. And as soon as he removed his white garments and replaced them with his elaborate wardrobe, this high priest would lead the congregation out of the courts and to his very own home where he would host an enormous party of fellowship. Another death averted. There was a reason to sing. So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. 
His coming again will confirm the promise that the most holy God has accepted his sacrifice, that all our sins have been forgiven. And he, our great high priest, will lead us all to his home for an enormous celebration where there will be food and beverages and dancing and unrestrained forever joy. That's why the people of God cry, even so, come Lord Jesus.